you know, no matter how hard I try, I can't say you can be seated. I have to say you may be seated because of that old quandary of when you say, can I go to the bathroom? And they say, I don't know, can you? That scarred me for life when I was your age. Which wasn't that long ago, but probably feels a long time ago. So we are currently uh, four weeks into a series that we've entitled How to Change. And the idea is that God has called us not only to be in right relationship with him, but to live life for him and to grow in that. If we've never been a Christian, then God would call us to become a Christian. And he's explained how that happens. And if we are a Christian, that we would continually live a life of change in terms of growing in godliness and holiness. And this is our fourth week. So we've already covered three weeks of this so far to try and establish a foundation for change before we can start looking at the actual implementation, the actual doing of that change. In the very first week, we established from 2 Peter 1 that in order to change, you have to have the right motivation, which means the goal of your life has to be the right goal. And God says the goal of your life should be to glorify him that he would have glory. This is why the world exists. This is why we exist. And God is so invested in that that he's created a clear path of how we would change. And we built on that in our second session in Romans chapter 6 by establishing that in order to glorify God, the way you change is by having a new nature, a new nature. And that happens through Christ. When you believe the gospel, you don't just believe that Jesus died for your sins and therefore you're forgiven of your sins because they were punished on Christ. And not only does his perfect life of righteousness be considered yours, that you would be perfect before the Father, believing the gospel does do both of those things. But even beyond that, your life has changed because Christ's death means the death of who you used to be. And the resurrection of Christ and your union with Christ in his resurrection means that he's given you a new life that can do what it never could do before. And we built on that last week, week three, by explaining that a change in nature really means a change in your heart. Our old way of life was that our thoughts, our desires, and our choices were all for ourselves, that it was actually impossible for any of those things to glorify God. Every one of us started life the same way. But through Christ and through the new heart that he's brought, through being united with him by believing the gospel, you now can do what you never could before, which is think as God would think and have you to think, that you can want what God wants you to want, and you can make the choices that God calls you to choose. And really where we're at this week, before we go on, is that tonight we're going to lay the last seed in a foundation for change. I think there's one more thing you need to know before we start really explaining what change looks like in your life and how you can actually start changing. And the last part is going to be revealed to us in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to be in verse 12. But let me remind you from the last time we were in Romans, or second week in Romans 6, is I explained to you very briefly that Romans is just about the gospel, which means Romans is about Christ, how Christ died for our sins and was raised again to prove that everything he needed to do, that you could be right with God, he did. But Romans chapter 6 again said that he also changed you. Through union with Christ, you can now do what you never could do before. However, after Romans 6, there's still a whole book of Romans after that, 16 more chapters. And Paul has more to explain than just the fact that you have a new nature. And one of the first things he needs to establish is that you're not just left to yourselves. I think a lot of people, when they become Christians, they start with this a ton of enthusiasm. They have all of these new truths and a new way of life. But ultimately, the more they start learning about God, I think a lot of people get nervous that they're left to fend for themselves, that you have a new nature that you're just left with, that you better make the right choices, you better figure things out. 
And even after many believers learn about God's sovereignty, it doesn't feel very personal. It kind of feels like God is just like out there and he's somehow, according to Romans 8.28, he's working everything somehow together like a puzzle and just putting everything together so that it works for good. And that's true. That is how God acts. But he also doesn't just leave us to ourselves. You know, anyone who's been a Christian for a long time understands that anything God would give us to help is really important. Because any serious Christian understands that being a Christian is a very serious thing. It's a very high calling. It's a serious responsibility. Every Christian has great expectations. You could sum up, one way you could sum up the Christian life is what, Paul's, or, uh, what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Which means being a Christian means dying to yourself. And that's hard. But when God gives us a high calling, ultimately what he's telling us is he's not just leaving us to fend for himself and has created the most personal path for us to be able to grow. One way I was thinking about this today was I was thinking of that famous line in Spider-Man when Uncle Ben is trying to talk to Peter Parker and he says that super famous line. What's the most famous line from Spider-Man? Someone tell me. Yeah. That's right, with great, everyone clap, yeah, excellent. You know your comic books, way to go. Um, with great power comes great responsibility. And in a weird way, that actually does have something to do with the Christian life in this sense. God has given Christians a great responsibility, and therefore, he has given them a great power. God has given you the power to fulfill the responsibilities that he has given you to do. And ultimately, the way Romans 8, verse 12 to 17, is going to explain that is that God has given to our souls himself. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has indwelt, which means is inside of, who lives with in every moment of their life, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And he is going to explain that some of the richest benefits of the Christian life come from Christ through the Holy Spirit. And Paul is going to explain that in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. And I'm going to read that for you. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me for these six verses. Starting in verse 12, Paul says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. This is the word of the living God. Honestly, this is both an incredibly simple passage in the sense that I really think this passage preaches itself. But at the same time, because we're talking about God, there are parts of this that I think are also a little complicated. But the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is so essential to change that it is essential that we cover it. And if you want to explain through Paul what he's getting at, why the Holy Spirit is so essential, these verses explain at least two reasons. And that'll be what we cover today. The first reason the Holy Spirit is essential to change is this. We are empowered in the Holy Spirit. We are empowered in the Holy Spirit. And that's verses 12 and 13. I think a good place to start with this is to remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. You know, if you think about it, the culture you guys in particular are living in is so big on freedom that we can choose to do anything we want to do. The Bible never makes that claim. 
It's very interesting. When Jesus says no one can serve two masters, the implication is that everyone serves a master. And even if your master is not Jesus, even if you are living life for yourself, Jesus is telling you honestly, you do not serve yourself. Everything you do is in service of someone. And what Paul had previously explained in Romans chapter 6 was that our previous master was sin. We are enslaved to do what God does not call us to do, and therefore it was impossible to be right with God. And the way Paul brings that same topic up again in Romans 8, it says that we are debtors. Now he says here we're no longer debtors to the flesh, and the point that he's making is we used to be. A debtor is someone you owe something to. Your motivation to do something is to pay something back. And what Paul previously explained is no matter how many good things we tried to do, there was no way we could pay back our debt to God. Because all we wanted before we were in Christ was really ourselves. We may have wanted to get out of hell. We may have wanted to escape the judgment of God, but we did not trust God and we tried to do it ourselves. That is no longer the case. What Paul is explaining is that previously you had no way to be right with God. It's what he said in Romans 8, 8, when he said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are people who are in Christ now know that the way they used to be, it was impossible to do what God wanted. But what he's explaining now with this idea in verse 12 that we are debtors is that our master is no longer sin and we have a new master. And the new master is the person who revealed Christ to us, the person who revealed the joy that we could have with freedom from sin and into God, the person who revealed the glory of God to us, the person who revealed our sin to us, the person who pointed us to salvation in Christ. And that person personally delivered the gospel to us. And that person is the Holy Spirit. What Paul is trying to explain is that every believer after being free in Christ, sees themselves as a debtor to God, which is another way of saying every Christian knows that they owe everything to God. Now, what does that mean that we owe everything to God? Paul is going to explain. A Christian is someone who owes everything to God in the sense that their life is one big joyful motivation to honor God. And when Paul gets specific in verse 13, he says that means we fight sin. Now, forgiveness in Christ has made us free from sin, but that doesn't mean that we go back to the very sin we just escaped from. We have a joyful obligation, a joyful responsibility to honor God. We know what the old way of life was, and now we know what the new way of life is. Verse 13, Paul says that. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now to clarify, Paul is not saying that Christians can lose their salvation. Christ says that I am the good shepherd and none of my sheep will stray from me. You cannot lose your salvation. But Paul is trying to clarify what every true Christian believes, which is that every Christian knows sin is wrong and therefore flees from sin, not perfectly, but it is both the desire of their heart and a responsibility that they understand, they believe, and it directs the course of their life. Now, that doesn't mean they're free from sin completely. Like Spurgeon once said, the presence of sin is still there, but the power to say no is real, and the Christian fully grasps that. Alistair Begg, who preached an amazing sermon on this, and I would encourage you to listen to it, it's called the spirit of sonship, he said this, our sinful inclinations have been dethroned, but they haven't been destroyed. Let me say it one more time. Our sinful inclinations, that means the fact that we wanted to sin, it has been dethroned, but they have not been destroyed. Therefore, we have to learn to deal with sin immediately, decisively, radically, and consistently. It's worth making the costliest of sacrifices in this life for the sake of eternal life. Every person who understands they're a believer will do anything to escape sin, both because it honors Christ and they know the consequences of sin in their life. The famous Puritan John Owen once said something very famous that many Christians quote all the time. 
He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's true. Now for many people, that means that if sin is an overwhelming power over everything in your life, then you should reconsider if you are a believer. But what he also means is that believers still sin and believers still often feel burdened by their sin. And they too have an obligation and responsibility to fight sin. And the less that they do, they won't be joyfully walking into heaven. They will be crawling on their hands and feet, depressed, unhappy, never having taken all of the benefits of Christ that God has fully given them. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said in a book that I'm reading and enjoying called Spiritual Depression, unfortunately, there are many unhappy Christians. There should not be a lot of unhappy Christians, but there are many unhappy Christians. And part of the reason is because they feel that sin is still impossible to fight. And as difficult as that seems, it really sets the stage for God to tell an amazing story about what he's going to do in our lives. One thing that I've noticed as someone who's seen a ton of movies is that some of the most popular movies that have ever been made are underdog stories. Do you know what an underdog story is? It's like when someone seems to be facing off against an antagonist or something bad, and it's like impossible for them to beat that thing. But then when they do beat that thing, it's like the greatest victory ever. And the more impossible it seems like uh, they will beat the enemy, uh, the greater the victory is. Underdog stories, there's so many like that. And my second favorite movie of all time is about that. It's called Remember the Titans. Awesome movie. Raise your hand if you've seen that movie. Good for you. Good for you. Good. So good. So it's a football movie. I'm not a football person because I'm not American. And... <laughs> Um, <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Tyrone. No, I didn't mean it with contempt. I'm just saying we don't like football as much. But uh, Remember the Titans is not a good movie because of the fact it's about football. The real enemy isn't like every other team that they're trying to beat. The real problem is that a school integrates African Americans into the Caucasian school district, and it causes a million problems in the town. Racism seems to be everywhere. And so now the real problem isn't just a football team trying to win games, but it's trying to be a team together because they kind of hate each other. The first half of the movie is them fighting a lot, like physically fighting. And not only that, not only are they fighting each other, but the whole town seems to be fighting against the fact that they should have to share a football team. And not only that, but even the management of the team, Denzel Washington, and the other guy, whatever his name is, even the two of them can't agree on anything. But the beauty of that movie is the fact that all of these insurmountable odds against them seem to be triumphed over at the end of the movie, and it's a true victory. And it's a great victory because what seemed impossible is now possible. God is going to tell his story of how he defeats the impossible by giving us the ability to fight sin in our lives. Because sin, even in the new nature, apart from God's help, would be impossible. But God's glory in his grace is that he provides the Holy Spirit that we would overcome an enemy we never could beat before. And that is sin in our ordinary life. Sin in our ordinary life. The first two verses Paul said before this are in Romans chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. And this is what Paul says there. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. We were people unable to fight sin. And now everything about life is finally doing what we were designed to do, to live a life of righteousness for God. Paul continues by saying, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same God that did the impossible, raising a man from the dead, that same God dwells in a believer. Simply through this, they believe in Jesus Christ. Any ordinary believer has the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to fight sin, if they believe in Jesus Christ. 
Because if they believe in Jesus Christ, that is the guarantee that God not only indwells in us, but is invested in us. God has purposes for you fighting sin in your life. A perfect example of this was the Corinthians. Paul wrote two letters to them in the Bible and probably wrote four letters in total. And they were a church of Christians who had a terrible time fighting sin. And they especially had an insane problem with sexual immorality, which is so encouraging for us to hear because that is one of the most profound problems in the Christian church. People who genuinely love God, genuinely want to serve God, but are surrounded by a culture that loves pleasure at any cost. And it weighs them down. And when Paul was encouraging the Corinthians that they can fight that sin and any other sin in their life, this is what he said to them in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. He said this, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That was both a command and a promise. What Paul is saying is that your body was like a house that you rented out for sin, and God moved in. And do you think that God is just going to move in and leave the house the way it was? Absolutely not. God has given you himself, and no one receives the Spirit of God and does not change. That is a command, but it's also a promise. It is a promise that God has an invented invested interest in his people that he has said they will grow in godliness. The way Paul says it another way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, is he says it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That verse may be more than any verse in the Bible, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, might be the best verse to explain the mystery that is sanctification, the mystery of change in the believer. Because Paul just said, you better work out your salvation because God works in you. And the question so many believers have, okay, who's killing sin? Is it me killing sin or is it the spirit killing sin? And the Bible answers yes to both. Ultimately, God is never going to take himself off the throne of his own sovereignty. God is 100% sovereign, which means he is doing everything happening in this universe. But the result of his sovereignty working in the life of a believer is that they would choose to fight sin. That is the promise of the Bible. God's sovereignty works out in such a way that his people would choose to fight sin. The Holy Spirit's sovereign power is that your heart would decide to fight sin and would decide to purify itself. Again, I can't stress it enough. This is a command, but it is also a promise. And Paul really wants to explain how serious this is. J.I. Packer, a famous preacher, once said, the motto of this section should not be let go and let God, but rather trust God and get going. If you believe that Christ rose from the dead and you believe that God punished him for your sin, and you believe that you are only righteous before God because of Christ's perfect life and not your own, you have the Holy Spirit. So start living like it. Be confident that this is the case. Be confident that your relationship with God has changed. And because that's so important, Paul's going to double down with the second thing that he explains in verses 14 to 17. And this is the second thing that Paul explains. It is essential to understand change from the Holy Spirit in that you are adopted in the Spirit. That's the second thing. You are adopted in the Spirit. He explained you're empowered by the Spirit. Now he's explaining in verse 14 to 17, you're empowered, or sorry, you're adopted in the Spirit. Paul is going to explain in verse 15 that we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear. Fear is one of the most powerful forces in life. So much of our lives are directed by what we're scared of. And I'm sure that probably the thing, not, not just probably, but almost undoubtedly, the greatest fear anyone has is death. 
The greatest fear anyone has is death. And even for Christians, that can make coming to God very intimidating, even after you've received Christ. Because the reality is that God has the power of death. And God has the power to put his judgment upon anyone that sins. Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death. We have a biological calendar that's working inevitably towards one day where we will no longer exist. But that only happens because we sin. And more than that, we know that a holy God hates sin. And that can be intimidating. For example, in Psalm 7, Paul says, or rather the psalmist says, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows indignation, that's anger, every day. And if one does not repent, he will sharpen his sword and he has bent his bow and taken aim. Which means, I think, God, to many of us, always seems like someone who's aiming a bow at us all the time and is ready to attack us. It can be so easy to think for a Christian that when we sin, God's mad at us. I know for so much of my life, this was the case as well. And it was definitely the case for many other Christians, including Martin Luther. I'm sure many of you guys have heard of before. Someone online was describing the fear Martin Luther used to have when he was trying to figure out the gospel because he understood nothing he can do would be right before God. This is what someone online explained it as. Martin Luther described himself as having a deep sense of dread and despair which he could not escape. And the more he strove to earn God's favor through his devotion, the more keenly aware he was of his selfish motives and of simply wanting to escape God's judgment. It was a crazy cycle of self-defeating effort that only led to increasing despair in the search for peace. <clears throat> what Paul wants to explain is that part of what the Holy Spirit does in a believer is they change this kind of fear. Now later, in many other places in the Bible, it explains that God's people have what's called the fear of the Lord. It's a kind of reverential awe and wonder of God. But it's a different fear than the fear we normally have of God. And what Paul is going to explain is that the Holy Spirit is going to give us a conviction that seems too good to be true. He's going to change our fear into this, that we are God's children. That every believer is not just united with God, isn't just friends with God, but they are family with God. And that he has turned our fear of him into being in his family. Paul says in verse 14 and 15, All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit reminds believers that they really are children of God. The Holy Spirit frees us from fear and into family. And I think the question anybody would have after reading that is how do I know that I'm a child of God? How can I be sure that I'm part of the family of God? Paul explains it a couple ways. The first way he says in verse 14 is that you'll know you're a son or daughter of God if you're led by the Spirit of God. If you're led by the Spirit of God. And he explains, because he's already explained this for verses and verses, he's not talking about something subjective. So what I mean is that God leads you by his Spirit, and that's not through whispers, or through things he specifically gives to you, or through things that you need to look for in your life and investigate if that's a sign from God. Now, we're not restricting God. God can do whatever he wants to do. But what we're saying, the normal way that the Spirit of God leads the children of God is this. They desire holiness, and they actually start living in holiness. That they want to grow. They want to love God more. They want to please him more. And then they do love him more. And they do please him more. And that is because God, our Father, cares but the health of his children. Think about a father watching their child run into oncoming traffic. Think about a father protecting their child if they're at the zoo and they're leaning over the balcony and there's a hungry lion waiting to catch them. The father is not just going to let them wander into danger that will kill them. 
The father takes precautions that his people would flee from sin. Now, again, Paul's already explained that doesn't mean he's going to fight all of your sin for you, but it does mean that his spirit is going to remind you of the danger of sin, remind you of the consequences of sin, remind you that there's no obligation, no debt you owe to sin. And by his goodness, he would draw you to himself instead and continue to change you. But Paul explains in verse 15, that's not the only thing the Spirit does, which is good. Because every single person in this room, especially Christians, struggle with sin. And Paul goes on to explain something in verse 15. He explains that every Christian has an intimate connection with God. Intimate. Close. And he explains that by saying the Holy Spirit moves believers to call God Abba. Now, Abba means Father, and Paul actually explains that right after. He says Father, he repeats it, but he's trying to make a point in repeating it. Now, Abba, specifically, many people translate as Daddy. It's like a more intimate way, and that's getting at something that's accurate, but one thing it's missing is the sense that we still have reverence for God. We still have an understanding of God as king and Lord, but it is getting at something. What it's getting at is that Abba really means a warmth and confidence that God is leading our lives in love. It means God's relationship with you is one of warmth and one that you can have confidence that he loves you. The same way a father loves their child, that God's children can live with and depend on God because of God's immeasurable love for them. Paul is saying that anyone who believes in Christ for salvation can rely on God's fatherly care. And he's not saying special Christians or amazingly good Christians. He's saying any Christian, anyone who believes in Christ. They have a heavenly father who is ready and able to help. And the Holy Spirit reminds Christians that that's the case. He reminds them that their faith is enough for them to have confidence in this. J.I. Packer again said this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That's a statement. Adoption is a family idea. It is conceived in terms of love, in viewing God as love. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. And here is why that truth is so relevant for change. On one hand, it is very hard often for us to consider the God of the universe as our father. Honestly, Christianity is really the only respected religion in the world in which its followers would be so bold as to say the God of the universe, that's my dad. No self-respecting religion in the world does that. Many religions have an idea of this but they're not respected in the world. And every respected religion in the world that really has devoted followers en masse, none of them would ever claim that as their own. So what makes Christians so bold as to call the God of the universe our father? First of all, Jesus commanded it. It was not a suggestion, it was a command. That's why he told his disciples, when you pray to God, say, our father. He explained to his disciples that through him, his father would be their father as well. That was his command. And that would seem to be enough to believe in Christ, but God has done something better. Not only do you rely on scripture to make that true to you, but the Holy Spirit needs to remind you that scripture is true. That scripture is for you. And yet we can still have an issue with that because if we're honest, again... Do you feel that God loves you when you sin? Ask yourself right now. Think of the last time that you committed a sin. I think all of us can remember, and we can remember a particular sin. Remember the last time you sinned. And remember if you thought it was easy to pray after that. I think most people have this tendency. I sin, I figure it out. I sin, I won't sin next time, God. I sin. God, I've got a plan. I'm not going to do this again. But prayer is maybe the most difficult thing ever. 
Because we feel when we sin that God hates us. We feel when we sin that God doesn't love us right now. We feel that God is mad at us. And it is the Holy Spirit that reminds us that is not the case. When you sin, God still loves you. And it's not because of you. It's because what God has done for you in Christ God sent Christ to die for you, to live a perfect life for you, so that as you grow in Christ and as you continue as a Christian, you can still be confident by the Holy Spirit reminding you that God loves you, loves you enough that he's not just omnisciently watching you from afar, that he is inside you, and you are his child, and his investment is personal that he loves his children enough to comfort them. Honestly, that's the way that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16, that it is the helper. And another accurate translation of that is the comforter, that God wants you to be comforted and helped in the most difficult places for you to believe you're actually a Christian. J.I. Packer again says this, what is a Christian? Now, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. We have not been given a spirit that would tell us God hates us. We've been given a spirit that convicts us of sin, but comforts us as children. That is the spirit God has given us. And he wants to explain that you can rely on God's goodness to give you all the benefits that God would give to his children. I think adoption should hopefully be a very stirring thing for most of us, because a number of us here and a number of us in the church have been adopted. We understand the privilege that adoption was. And when Paul used that language, he was the only one in the New Testament to use that language. Everyone he listened to understood what he was talking about. Not Jewish people, adoption wasn't a big thing with them, but the Romans and Greeks did. There would constantly be a very complicated and very public ceremonial legal practice in which someone who wasn't biologically related to someone would become a part of their family. Now, there were reasons for that. Some people, the reason was because they wanted their name to pass on and they didn't have any males. And males were the ones who kept the family line going. Other people, they just did it out of benevolence. They just loved someone. And some people did it because they noticed a father in another family was a very awful father. And an awful father was a terrifying thing because in Roman culture, the power of life and death was with the father. They could do anything they wanted legally, even kill their son if they wanted to, even kill their daughter if they wanted to. So what happened in adoption was a very complicated process would happen in which many things were said, payments were made, many legal documents were signed, seven witnesses were present, until finally, the person would say, do you allow this person to be into this family? And the previous father would say, no. They'd do the whole thing again. They'd ask the father again, can we get him out of your family into this person? They would say no again. And then they'd do everything again, pay the money, and say, do you say we can move this child to this family? And they would finally say yes. And everything would be documented. And it needed to be documented because this person needed to be proved that they could truly get an inheritance from their new family. Everything needed to be in place so that when that family died, that this person who wasn't their child would be treated as if they were their biological child and they would receive all of the benefits once they passed away. There could be no better picture of our relationship with Christ, our relationship with God the Father, than adoption. Because we were under the power of sin, but we've been reclaimed and illegally made a child of God. And that comes with many benefits. 
It comes with love as he's explained, but it's more than that. It comes with an inheritance. It comes with the promise that you will receive the benefits of a God who owns all creation and only does good and only has good in store for those who know him. And that is so important that he provided the Holy Spirit to make it sure that just as Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so everyone who believes in him would be treated as Christ. Christ himself said in John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive Christ and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Galatians 3.26 says the same, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The way Paul says it in our text is that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I think James Montgomery Boyce appropriately says this, what is Jesus' inheritance then? If we're going to get what Jesus gets, what are we going to get if we're in Christ? And he says this, the only thing that can be properly said is that the inheritance is the Father. That Christ's inheritance is the glory of God, which means the vision of, participation in, and enjoyment of God himself. That's heaven. That's heaven. Where does the Holy Spirit come in? The first way he comes in is in verse 16 and getting into 17. That if we are children of God, then we are heirs. And we know that because the Spirit bears witness. In Roman adoption, you needed seven people present to say this person definitely was adopted. Even we and Ashley had to sign our marriage certificate. We just didn't do it ourselves. We needed two friends to come up from the valley and be present and have their names written on it to prove that we really did get married. Our witness is God himself dwelling in us. He is a million immeasurable witnesses to tell you, I know God adopted you. You believe in Christ, God adopted you. I am the witness. It's more than that as well. Because God says he will never leave his people, the Holy Spirit is in our hearts not only to remind us, but to secure us. If we didn't have the Spirit, we'd never stick with God. We are fickle and we are weak. But through the Holy Spirit, we have been secured in our inheritance. We will never lose it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Christ, and here's the key, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the Spirit, God has given you many, many benefits now, but by the Spirit, you have been guaranteed to get immeasurably greater benefits in heaven forevermore. That means anything God calls us to in this life is so worth it. Paul explains later in Romans 8 and verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons. And then he explains what that includes. Redemption of our bodies. Our bodies still struggle with sin, and it's one of the worst things, if not the worst thing, in this life. And one day, we're going to have a glorified body that's not going to struggle with sin anymore, that's not going to be separated from God anymore. And the Holy Spirit reminds us, by pulling us to Scripture, reminding us that it's true, that this reality is in store for us. And that reality is so guaranteed that believers can get through anything on the way to receiving that inheritance. And that includes suffering. That includes suffering. And that's the way that Paul wraps up this text. He says in verse 17 that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Paul is not saying that every Christian better go out and find suffering. 
But Paul is simply explaining. And I love this because the Bible doesn't lie to us. He's saying suffering will inevitably find you. It is impossible to get to heaven without scars. But if it was up to us, we would bail. If it were up to us, we would suffer and we would respond the way the rest of the world responds to suffering, which is saying, God isn't real, and if he is real, he doesn't love me. And the Holy Spirit reminds us that's not true. Here's one reason it's not true. Because the person that Christ loves more, or God loves more than anyone in this world, is Christ. And Christ suffered more than we will ever suffer. Paul explains this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And just to correct myself, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, this is what Paul, <laughs> I said it again. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. For it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God made it sovereignly sure that everything Christ needed to do for our salvation would be accomplished, and that included suffering. God had a purpose for Christ's suffering, and so Christ willingly suffered, and this is why he did it. Verse 11, so that he would sanctify, be sanctified, and sanctify others. The way he says it is, he sanctifies, and those who are all sanctified have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. One time I asked some of you guys if you think it's weird to call God your friend. And the response I got was that it seems a little inappropriate. God is saying we're family. And God is saying that Christ suffered in order that he would not be ashamed to call us his brothers. That kind of assurity should save us from so much sin, should save us from so much suffering, should save us from the idea that when we suffer, it's because God hates us or is mad at us. It's not. Hebrews goes on to explain that part of the reason that Christians suffer is because he's treating them as children, just as he taught Christ, and he has good purposes in it. And we're going to actually end up doing later a whole sermon on that. But what we're establishing now is this. Suffering has a purpose, and Christians will be reminded of the purposes because of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 4.17, and I'll end with this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. God is reminding you that you are family with God, that you are a brother with Christ, that God is your father because the Holy Spirit will remind you of that. So I just want to end with this question. Do you trust God is your father? Do you actually believe that it is possible that the God of the universe who hates sin would love us as a sinner? Only someone in the Holy Spirit could believe that. But God has testified it is 100% too, so that the Holy Spirit can do its work of hope. Of hope. And that's what Paul says in Romans 15, 13. He says this, May the God of hope fill you with all peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You believing in Christ is supernatural. In fact, it is impossible, just like changing. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes it possible. If you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit has sealed you for adoption. You are a guaranteed child of God. You can withstand any suffering, and you will be empowered to change. And the Holy Spirit will confirm that as you go to Scripture, as you read its truths, and as you are guaranteed that even though this seems too good to be true, it is not, because God says it's true. And if you believe in Christ, it is yours. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you do good. It seems too good to be true that 
we might call you Father, considering all of our sin. And it is such a mystery to understand how it is that you've called us out of sin when we still sin so much. But Father, for those of us who know you, we know what you've brought us from. We know the captivating power that sin had over our lives. And though we are not free from it, we understand that we have freedom from its power. Though its presence is still here, we know that only you could have brought the change you have brought. And it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit. You have not changed us and forsaken us. You have changed us and you live with us. You indwell within us. Even now, you hear all of our prayers through the petition of your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you, our Father. But Father, for those of us who do not know you, who do not wish to know you, who do not want to love you, only you can bring that change. Please bring that change. This world is so convincing in its explanations that Christianity is only another form of slavery, but only you can bring the truth that it is the world that is enslaved to sin. It is the world that cannot turn away from running headlong into death and hell. But Father, you have provided a way of escape for anyone who would trust in your son Christ. And Father, we need your spirit to unite us to Christ, that we would believe in him, that we would be transformed by him, and that we would walk with him, and that we would live for him. Only you can do those things. So Father, we pray that we would cry out to you, that we would continue to petition our lives for you, that we would offer up our lives as a sacrifice of praise, that our lives would be dedicated on the altar of worship. And Father, that is impossible, but by you all things are possible. Father, please help us to trust you and love you and to be reminded that not only can we fight sin by your spirit, but we can also be your children because of the power of your spirit. That You are reminding us that if we trust in Christ, we truly are your children. Thank you for these truths, Father, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. Next week, again, we're going to be uh, at the Stand to Reason conference, and then after that... We're going to start actually tackling um, how to change in terms of taking these foundational truths and then applying them, doing things that we can really do to practice a pattern of growing in holiness and growing in godliness. Um, just a couple quick things. If you were on the junior high girls team that helped tear down last week, it's going to be the other group this week that's helping with tear down. So if you helped last week, uh, you're not helping. If you didn't help last week, you're helping this time. So you guys can come at 45, at 945. You're going to come to the stage, and I'm going to show you how to tear this stuff down for future reference. We're rotating through all of the different small groups. Um, I think that is it. Besides that, remember to please sign. If you haven't signed um, Pam and Bill Couch's cards, please do that now before you go to small group. Please do it fast, but do it well, and then go to small group. Thanks, guys.